Welcome back, choir, to the space over my shoulder. I'll try and get used to it again. We'll be, we'll be fine. We're going to be just fine. The Lord be with you. If you read the first 12 chapters of Matthew's Gospel, you'll find that it introduces us to the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. Starting in chapter 13, though, the theme of the book shifts. Matthew broadens the focus to the life and the work of the persons who make up the church. Trying to answer the question, what does it mean for us to be the church? And of course, there are some parables in there, because that's how Jesus teaches. Parables like the story of the Good Shepherd. One view of the church that's so warm and cuddly, that'll preach every single Sunday. You know the one. It's probably on a stained glass window somewhere. The shepherd goes out into the wild to rescue the wandering sheep. Having scoured the hills, the vigilant shepherd at last finds his wrung out and decrepit animal. He carries the little beast home to safety. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. But in the midst of these lessons about the church, there is another sort of parable. It's a little trickier to preach. And this story that we read today of the unmerciful servant is a view of the church at its very worst. It's a brutal And it's an ugly, cautionary tale held up for us to reflect our capacity for the meanest impulses, petty grudges, violent outbursts, and the degradation of our fellow human beings. I don't know about you, I don't know what you think about when you think of a gangster movie. Maybe for some of you it's The Godfather or Breaking Bad. Maybe some of you still think of that guy who flicks that coin and talks like this, see? But when I see this parable, I can't not think about a gangster movie. The scene opens with a desperate man who's pleading with the notorious mafia boss. He's pleading for his life, and he's on his knees, and he's begging as the muscle men prepare to carry him away. And this chump owes an unimaginable debt. It's 30 bazillion dollars, to be exact, with more money than he could earn in a thousand lifetimes. And then, wonder of wonders, the kindly mafioso, demonstrating unexpected mercy, forgives the man his entire debt, all of it. It's a good day for Tony Soprano. So now we cut to the scene of the now liberated man and he's driving down Broadway in his El Camino and he's singing along with the radio, I'm walking on sunshine, Katrina and the waves. And as the camera follows him, where is he driving? It looks like he's headed to a a rundown neighborhood where the locals are working on a rusty car in somebody's driveway. What's this? He's... He's dragging a man out from under the hood. And he's wrapping his fingers around the man's neck. 
pay me that money you owe me for this 92 Cutlass Supreme, or it's going to go really bad for you and your family. In the final scene, it's evening, and there's a dinner party. Someone's pouring champagne, and the boss is in a tuxedo, of course. And a messenger demurely whispers in his ear. And there's a pause, and a scowl crawls across the mafioso's face. He did what? (laughs) The wife and kids? Right after I showed him all that mercy, bring that miserable so-and-so to me. It's a hard message, but the message of the parable seems clear enough. Don't be like that reprehensible villain of a guy. Forgive your brother and your sister from your heart. That's probably all we need to say about that. Uh, Thanks be to God, I think. Oh, sorry. Is it really that simple? Forgive and be forgiven? Forgiving someone for the wrong they've committed against us may be the most difficult thing we ever do. It is intimate and courageous and terrifying. Does it mean when we forgive that we agree that what has been done to us was okay? Does it mean we let people off the hook, ignore harm and abandon consequence? Do we forsake justice through forgiveness? Does it mean we let people, uh, sorry, any aspect of human relationships is rarely that simple. With good intentions, Christians have often oversimplified forgiveness. Just forgive them. That has been a statement that is at the source of many spiritual wounds. Maybe this has been your experience. Religious advice from someone attempting to gloss over a difficult reality. But there are no shortcuts for the journey like this. We have to take every step along the steep path. I spend a lot of time asking these questions and searching for wisdom on this subject of forgiveness in my work as a prison chaplain. We come back to it again and again, especially during conversations about restorative justice, grief and loss, and belonging. Nearly every time the subject comes up, I hear a familiar sentiment. I know. I need to forgive. A statement that is more about shame than forgiveness. But what does it really look like in the context of harm and healing to offer someone mercy? How do we seek justice while also reflecting the radical forgiveness as described in our passage this morning? Perhaps another type of sermon would offer three points for you to jot down on the back of your bulletin and post to your fridge for the week. Three steps to forgiveness, faith, fellowship, and freedom. I don't think either of us is very good at a sermon like that because I don't believe that there is a simple or straightforward path to and through forgiveness. It is as unique as each individual, as complex as each relationship. Forgiveness demands an honest exploration of the truth, a willingness to see things from another person's perspective, and the brave choice to abandon the pursuit of vengeance. It asks us to see the humanity in a person who has wounded us.
Thanks for that. Uh, the thing is, as we've all listened to you describe just how complicated forgiveness is as an idea, even now it, I, it's just occurred to me that so many, so many of us are probably right now calling to mind some difficult and some painful personal stories. Maybe there's one especially raw memory that still stings and lingers. And let's complicate it some more. We are forgiven and we are forgivers both. It might be worth noting again that this passage is a part of Jesus' response to a question. How is the church going to live out its days in community of work and worship? We are not called to live out our life of faith in solitude. The Christian life is a life shared. And the Spirit gathers together such a collection of people that we mostly didn't choose. And asks us to mingle together our lives, even as we clunk and collide with all of our rough edges, and especially as we lay bare our vulnerable selves. We bring our gifts and our passions, and what a joy it is, but then we also bring our blind spots and our stubbornness and our prejudices and our most obnoxious selves, too. Peter asked, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And over the years, I've heard preachers chuckle at Jesus' exaggeration in his response to Peter. 77 times, or maybe even 70 times, seven times forgivenesses. Oh, Jesus, you zany exaggerating, parabolic teacher. It's just another wild number to make a point. If you consider, though, the days and the weeks and the seasons which form our life together, and as I think of all the ways that we show up in various states and stages of humanity through difficult moments in the course of years, 77 forgivenesses starts to sound like a more realistic number. In a large part because we have no other path to authentic community except by mercy. The giving and the receiving. With a wider view of things, forgiveness begins to look like a posture we commit ourselves to. As slow as seasons, a practice that we try on week after week after week. In light of all this, forgiveness becomes for us a way of living born out of mercy. It is a spiritual practice, and like every discipline, the forgiver's journey is not about reaching a metaphorical finish line. It is not about perfection. It is not something we do just once. Oh, I forgave him last year. The pain and harm never to rear its ugly head again. Perhaps that sort of teaching on forgiveness has paralyzed and imprisoned you in shame. I have tried to forgive and failed. Therefore, I'm not worthy of forgiveness, just like that reprehensible servant in our story. 
This perspective can lead us towards such self-loathing. And as Becky so thoughtfully reminded us last week, this is not Jesus' message for us. Jesus knows our struggle. He knows the challenge of human relationship. And he knows the people he is asking us to partner with. He knows. Forgiveness, like prayer or engagement in a faith community, or gathering around the Lord's table, like our return to the work of the people each week, is a balm to our souls, a source of connection and direction. It is a way for us to let go of toxic bitterness, resentment, and hatred. It supports us when we feel hopeless, stuck, lost, and wounded. The practice of forgiveness returns us to the foundation of mercy where we find grace to help us in our time of need. It returns us to the feet of the king who looks upon us with pity and offers us extravagant grace. The practice of opening our hearts to forgiveness when we encounter old scars or fresh wounds connects us to our creator and transforms our relationships. It allows us to pursue kindness and goodness and faithfulness. It just so happens that unforgiveness can also be a way of living one that comes so naturally and is diminished, diminishes and harms us. These dark impulses damage our soul and corrode our humanity, making healthy relationships impossible. The posture and practice of forgiving is transformative. Being the recipient of forgiveness is life-changing. Like the man in our story who was forgiven by, but forgiven such an unpayable debt, our story too begins with an audacious mercy. And even as Amanda and I have tried to add some texture to this story by naming some of the nuance and the messy humanity, if we take another step back again, we are invited, in this story even, to soak in a message of love and mercy. We do not forgive just so that we will be forgiven. We forgive because of the mercy and love of our Creator that has been shown to us. From what the Gospels tell us, Jesus really didn't want any of us to squander the days and the weeks of our lives. And a life without mercy is a squandering of life's richness, all of its potential. Life without mercy is tragic. Instead, choosing the intentional and the difficult road of mercy and compassion leads us into a fruitful life, well-lived, rich in friendship and purpose. Truly, this is the wisdom for the church, and may we continue to marinate it, marinate in it deeply. A lesson that we return to with regularity. And so, friends, take heart. Make a practice of receiving mercy. Find courage. Step into that awkward moment. Say those hard words. Risk vulnerability. Embrace and cry tears of gratitude and joy. Share your heart with these people. Share your life with the world. Find friends amid enemies. Wake up in the morning and forgive afresh.
go to bed at night, and leave your anger in the hands of a loving God. Practice mercy and be free. Amen. Thanks be to God.